Well, church, if you'll turn with me to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis 6. We'll begin by looking at verses 5 through 7. So hear the word of the Lord. Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 through 7. Then Yahweh saw that the evil of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And Yahweh regretted that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And Yahweh said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of Yahweh. And pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we pray that your spirit will illuminate it, our minds and our hearts in such a way that he will equip and enable our hands to carry out the work that you have prepared beforehand for us. We ask that you be with us this morning. In the name of your son we pray, amen. So, once more, we've been working through Genesis, particularly chapters 1 through 3, and that was the uh, initial intent, was really only to cover Genesis 1 through 3, not to say there's nothing worth talking about in the the next uh, 36 chapters, 37 chapters, but we have another sermon series planned for the fall, but because we do have a few weeks before kind of the fall begins in earnest, uh, we thought we would cover a few different topics uh, in Genesis uh, following Genesis 3. So once again, Genesis 1 through 3 really does establish the framework, the entirety of the framework for the Christian worldview and everything that we need to know about God, about us, and about the redemption that God promises and ultimately fulfills in Christ. We see all of those things in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. If you get Genesis 1, 2, and 3 wrong, there's a very good chance you're going to get everything else wrong in some way, shape, or form throughout the entirety of Scripture. So what else do we need to talk about in Genesis? Well, when we get to Genesis chapter 6, we get to the story of the flood, a real story. Once again, not when we say story, we don't mean fairy tale, we don't mean fable, we mean real story. And so Genesis chapter 6, 7, 8, and 9 talk about what leads up to the flood, talks about the flood, and talks about the after effects of the flood. Now, this is another essential thing to understand because the flood being a, a cataclysmic event, being a global event, and being something that really resets in many ways the creation is important for us to understand because in this one event, like in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we have the establishment of who man is, who God is, and we have a very clear picture of what judgment and salvation look like. But beneath all of that, and what we'll see this morning, is that we also see a clearly articulated covenant between God and man. So really everything that we talked about in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, particularly as it related to God and Adam and Eve, was established on the covenant that God made with them. Here's who I am. Here's who you are. This is what you can do. This is what you can't do. If you do the things that you should do, here are the blessings. 
And if you do the things that you shouldn't do, here are the curses. And that pattern is something that we will actually continue to look at over the next few weeks. We see God have a similar conversation with Abraham. We have God have a similar conversation with Jacob. And we actually see multiple covenants moving forward uh, through, through the rest of the Old Testament. But for the sake of, of this morning, because it will continue to re-emphasize and underline some of the concepts that we talked about in Genesis 1 through 3, and because the flood is such a well-known story, Noah and the ark is such a well-known part of Scripture, we're going to look at it today, not necessarily in a narrative sense. I think it's important that we understand the narrative. And real quick, what is the narrative of what happens? The narrative is that man becomes so sinful, as we read this morning in Genesis chapter 6, that God punishes the earth. Notice that the entire world gets punished. It's not just man. It's man and plant and animal. It's the very nature of the earth itself. The the, the terra firma beneath our feet is actually ravaged by the judgment that God brings upon it. But because of his righteousness, because of his obedience, because he is of the seed of the woman, because he is quick to obey God, through God's grace, Noah and his wife and his three sons and their three wives, along with two of every animal, is brought onto the ark. And even though the rains rise and the, the water comes up and it goes over the tallest mountain and it prevails on the earth for days and days, for 40 days and 40 nights, secure in the ark, Noah and his family are brought through. And so then we have the, the, the wonderful story of Noah sending out birds then them uh, coming back and then not coming back and then finally the dove bringing back the branch showing that there is plant life, vegetation on the top of a mountain. And of course then the, the ark comes to rest on the mountain that scripture calls Ararat and then the, uh, Noah and his family and the animals disembark at which point he builds an altar for God and they have a covenant renewal ceremony. So that's the story. You can read it, I promise. And I would encourage you to read it with your children and go through it. But today we're going to talk about some of these greater themes that I think are worth pulling out of this story. And so again, we'll turn back to Genesis 6, verses 5 through 7. Now, I know I just gave the, the, the entirety of the, of the Noah and the Ark story, but I think it's also worth mentioning how we got to this point. Because remember, we ended at the end of chapter 3, where Adam and Eve are exiled from the garden. Chapter 4 begins with Cain and Abel, and so things go from bad to worse. You have the the disregard of the, the promise that God made that he will provide for Adam and Eve if they don't eat from the fruit, and they eat of the fruit, and then they are exiled. They're excommunicated from God's presence and his temple garden in Eden. And then within a few days, weeks, generations, we don't know how long, their first offspring, Cain and Abel, commit murder. Not both of them. One of them's murdered. One of them commits the murder. And then what we see over the next few chapters is a lot of genealogies, but what those genealogies actually trace is a few things. One, it reminds us of the historicity of Scripture, that this is not myth. This is not fairy tale or fable, but there is actual men that lived in an actual line of succession, one to the next. What it also traces, as we'll see this morning as we get to Noah, is that God is faithful in preserving the faithful seed of the woman. And that is where we get to to Noah, a man who, Scripture says, was righteous. You see the ups and downs, even in those initial generations, those first hundred years of, of the world's history, 
And you see some things happen that are definitely not good. Not only the murder of Cain and Abel, but man was given this command to, to spread out across the world. And this is a command, remember, that was given in the garden when there was innocence. This is not a command that was given subsequent to the fall. This is a command that was baked into the cake of who people are to go and spread out across the face of the earth. But what you'll read as you go through Genesis 4 and 5 is that men decided to stop and to build cities. They didn't go out and spread. They stayed in one place. Inevitably, if God said stay and build cities, they would have spread out because that's just human nature. But men stayed and they built cities. They didn't spread out across the world. And those cities became monuments to man's grandeur, monuments to man's hubris. And then you get to chapter 6, and you have a, a text that I'm sure some of you wish we would spend a lot of time on this morning. But we have the sons of God marrying the daughters of man. And this is abominable. Whatever the result is, some say it is, it is, it is uh, earthly kings taking advantage of, of uh, women of a lesser socioeconomic status. Some say that it is the angelic beings breeding with humans. Scripture is not clear on this, but whatever the result is, is some sort of abomination that adds to the depravity and the sinfulness that we see leading up to God saying the words that we already read in Genesis chapter 6. So let's return to those now that we have a little bit of a snapshot of what's going on. So Genesis 6, 5, Then Yahweh saw the evil of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. So again, verse 5 reestablishes evil's quick creep. Once evil entered into creation through the willful participation of Eve and then Adam in violating God's good and perfect law, a law that wasn't created to hem man in, but a law that was created for his flourishing and also for the rightly ordered obedience of him towards his creator, as soon as man violated that, you see evil's quick creep. A direct violation of God's law, going to murder, going towards a number of other examples that we see in these chapters of how depraved man could be. To the point where we get to what we just read, the evil of man was great on the earth. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. We get a really good sense at what God's trying to say in the English. In the Hebrew, it's even more deeply underlined. You're just getting this only, ever, always. This superlative language is being spoken of. And the thing is, is this is not that hard for us to picture. It's not that hard to walk out into the world today, to open up the app that talks about the news on your phone, and realize that it's not hard to picture the evil of man being great and that every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. This is why we see the whole earth was bent by sin. The whole earth was bent by sin. Now, why use this word bent? I'm actually, this is, this is not my concept. And in, in a few of C.S. Lewis's uh, books, he uses this language in talking about what happens to the world and what happens to man when he deviates from God's path. Is man completely broken? Well, in a salvation sense, he's completely broken. But in a functional sense, man is not broken. Man is bent. We still bear the image of God. We already talked about that, and that's something that's going to be reinforced later in this morning's passage. 
So although we have not lost the image of God, we've not lost the ability to, to spread across the world, to, to, to multiply, to, to work, to do all these things we were created to do. We have not lost the ability to worship. Once again, going back to this morning's object lesson, we are all about worship. Just more often than not, it doesn't find its ultimate object in God. It finds it in the creation, oftentimes being ourselves. And so the whole earth was bent by sin. Man didn't stop procreating. Man didn't stop, uh, didn't stop um, worshiping. He just did so in a bent way. Bent tools are not good tools to use. Bent, with bent tools, you lose precision. With bent tools, you lose the purpose for which the tool was created. With bent tools, you are actually at great danger of hurting yourself or someone else. And consequently, when man is bent, when the world is bent, things don't work the way they should. And God utters these words, this sentiment of a great calamity that man brought upon himself from leaving Eden up to the point right before the flood. We see growth and development, but that growth and development isn't the right kind of growth and development. It is not technological prowess. It is not growing in understanding how to worship God. It is growth and development of sin and of enmity. Enmity between each other and enmity between man and God. Again, church, this is the way of fallen man. Left to our devices, we are bent, and we increase in our bentness. We increase in our inability to do what is right. We see this at, at, in the primordial stages of our world's history, and we see it today in 2023 with all of the technological, academic, and social advances, advances that we believe that we have. If anything, our culture is moving at a rapid pace that, that exceeds that of previous cultures. The next thing I think that's worth bringing up and, and worth talking about briefly is what we see in verse 6 and what God references again in verse 7. It says, and Yahweh God, now remember, Yahweh is the covenant name between himself and people. It's a, it's a personal name. This is not a distant God. This is the close God, the imminent God, the God that has a relationship that he forged with his people. It says, Yahweh saw the evil of man was great on the earth. And then it says in verse 6, and Yahweh regretted that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. Did God make a mistake? God regrets something. When you regret something, why do you regret things? You chose chicken instead of fish. You wore the black shirt on the sunny day instead of the white shirt on the sunny day. You wore flip-flops for the walk through the city that ends up being many, many miles instead of shoes with good support. I regret my decision. We regret decisions that we make because we make bad decisions. Two things are happening here, and this probably this, dealing with this kind of language would deserve an entire study on its own, but I want to be clear when we come to texts like this. Language like this demonstrates two things. One, it is anthropomorphic. What does that mean? God communicates to us in ways that we can understand. When something happens that you do that you don't like, what does it feel like? It feels like regret. Now, we know that God doesn't change. Scripture is clear on that. We know that God doesn't make mistakes. Scripture is clear on that. 
we know that God's will, intention, and plan are perfect. Scripture is clear on all of those things. So when Scripture talks about God regretting, when Scripture talks about God relenting, we see that in a couple other places in Scripture, when we see this as as God um, withholding the calamity he had intended for his people, we see that a lot in the Old Testament, and we actually feel that ourselves. What we're getting is we're getting a picture to allow us to understand what it is like. Not what it is, but what it is like. And we actually see a a really uh, kind of poignant way to see that in the second part. It talks about God God regretting. But then in the second half of verse 6-6, it says, and he was grieved in his heart. Does God have a heart? Does God have a physical beating heart? No, this illustrates and demonstrates the analogical language that man needs to understand who God is and what he's done. Now, when you feel things, do you feel things in your heart? Does the, does, if the, the, the MRI machine, would it light up? I mean, it may, your heart rate may increase or it may decrease, it may flutter, but where are you actually feeling things? You're feeling things in your mind. This is physically, biologically, that's where it's happening. But we ourselves use analogical language to communicate how we feel about things and what we know about things. And so again, there's much more that could be said about this language, about God's regret. But it's not as man regrets. It's not because of a poor decision. It's not because of a bad choice. It's not because we had two options and we chose one and we should have chosen the other. God is feeling grief over the sin of his creation. Creation bent by sin grieves its creator. This shows the loving kindness of God. This shows the compassion of God. This shows that God is not some sort of absent, far-off deity who is simply doing whatever he wants to do with no regard for what that means for his creation. And I think that that's important to keep in mind as we move on here to the the great cataclysmic judgment that is going to befall the entire world, is that this is not something that is done by God in a far-off, distant, and absent way. This is one of the caricatures of God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty over all of creation and God's sovereignty over individual souls of men and women who come to know him by faith or those who reject him. Sometimes it's a caricature that God is far off and he doesn't care what anyone does. This is certainly not true. You have God grieved here in Genesis 6. You have Jesus weeping over Jerusalem in those days before his, his arrest, his betrayal and his arrest. These two examples and countless others in Scripture demonstrate that God's sovereignty in the, the, the um, providential aspects of the entirety of creation and God's sovereignty over the individual salvation of people are both things that can live with one another and are completely in agreement with his affections for and his grief for those who know him and those who don't know him. Once more, this is a topic that deserves much more conversation, but because it's in our text, it's worth at least bringing up in brief. And these are things to pray about, just as a complete aside. If these are things you struggle with, how can a good God allow bad things to happen? These are things to have conversations about. These are things to come to myself or the elders or, or anyone else with these questions. But these are things, first and foremost, to pray about. 
If you ever have a good question, or a bad question for that matter, pray about it first. Allow the Lord, allow his spirit who is in you to bring you clarity about these things as you spend time in his word. Have conversations. Seek out the counsel of others. But pray about these things. God, how can you grieve that which you made? God, how can you, sovereign and holy, allow bad things to happen? Allow him to minister to you first through his word, through his spirit, and he will, he will give you answers. It's not always an easy process, but these are not ideas, thoughts, and concepts to push away and ignore because they make you think hard thoughts. Church Christians of all people who have a direct line to the truth through the revealed word and through the Holy Spirit living in us ought to be the last people to be afraid of hard questions. Well, Let's get back to our text. Skip, skip ahead with me to verse uh, 16 of chapter 7. Again, we're going through this in some broad strokes to touch on some of the, the big topics that this text, Noah and the Ark, brings up. So chapter 7, verse 16. And those that entered, so at this point, Noah and his family are in the Ark, the animals are in the Ark, and those that entered, male and female of all flesh, entered as God had commanded him, and Yahweh closed it behind him. And the flood came upon the earth for 40 days, and the water multiplied and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. And the water prevailed and multiplied greatly upon the earth, and the ark went on the surface of the water. And the water prevailed more and more upon the earth so that all the high mountains under all the heavens were covered. The water prevailed 15 cubits higher, and the mountains were covered. And all flesh that moved on the earth breathed its last. That is, birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth, as well as mankind. All in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, of all that was on the dry land, died. Thus he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and the birds of the sky. And they were blotted out from the earth, and only Noah remained, and those that were with him in the ark." What is the sense that you get? Once again, the English, you, we, we don't need to go into the Hebrew to understand the sense of the language and the sense of the text. Was this a few animals dying? Was the few people dying? Notice the repetitive use of every, all, different ways, drowning, the life being sucked out of their breath, or the breath being sucked out of them. All of these things blotted out over the mountains, all kinds of things. God is making it clear that this flood was a great judgment, that this flood was cataclysmic, that all were judged in this event because of the great sin of what? Of man. There's collateral damage. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Our sin brings collateral damage to those that are around us. The sin of our, our father, Adam, brought collateral damage onto the entire earth. The whole earth was judged by God. The whole earth was bent with sin. The whole earth was judged by God. Now, as, a, as a, a, another, a brief excursus, I think it's worth mentioning that this is treated in the rest of Scripture as a historical event. This is treated as a historical event. It's not myth. And it's actually treated as a historical event that had global implications. You know, one of the things that 
that we are, are wants to do as moderns in the 21st century, and this has been really our, our propensity over the last few hundred years, as we think we've gotten a grasp on cellular bi biology, as we think we've gotten a grasp on the geological record, as we think we've gotten a grasp on, on fossils, as we, think and we've, as we thought we've gotten a grasp on all of these scientific uh, things, whether they be biology, geology, anthropology, any of these studies, as we think we've gotten a grasp on them, and we've made great progress, we've made great waves, people are making great discoveries, as we feel like what we have to do is take what we think we know now, and we have to find a way to shoehorn it into Scripture. This is something that we talked about back in our second week of this study, when we talked about the days of creation. We talked about how God created and one of the things that has, has certainly been in vogue over the last 100, 150 years is saying there's no way there could have been a global flood. There's no way there could have been a cataclysmic flood that covered the entire world, as if we have some record saying it definitely never happened. We have a record saying it happened, and moreover, and this is very interesting, is that we have, across the globe, all sorts of cultures some that are kind of would, would be similar to a Western mindset, and some that are incredibly foreign, separated by language barriers, separated by natural boundaries of, of, of physically from one to another. We have flood stories, flood myths, flood fables that, that are found in virtually every culture. That's interesting. We have no record saying it didn't happen, but we have inspired records saying it did, and we have word of mouth throughout the years of people who have said that it did. And then we could go a step further and talk about what would a cataclysmic worldwide flood look like? It would look like mountains being upheaved. It would look like oceans getting trenches because as we skipped over, it talked about the, the, the deeps opening up their fountains. It would see great, great masses of animals being smashed together and being covered in sentiment, sediment, and then because of a great pressure, it would cause fossilization and things like that. Once more, things that modern science has given us that comports with what we read in Scripture. Now, church, this, I'm not a scientist, nor am I an anthropologist, but I think it's interesting that these two things... What we see in, our, in a geologic record and what we see as we study other cultures around the world, they do not run perpendicular with what we have in the Word of God. And even if we perceive that they did, how did science in the last 200 years think about the science that existed 100 years before it? It said, oh no, it all got it wrong. Where is science going to be in 100 years from now? Where is anthropology and our study of culture and history going to be in 100 years from now? We cannot be so myopic, so focused, so set in our ways that we think what we have found is settled and it's not going to change. Certainly, science that we were told was settled in the year 2020 is very different now in 2023. We just don't talk about that because that requires questioning. But once again, Christians of all people should be the most eager to question and ask things because we understand and acknowledge that all truth scientific truth, all human truth, is God's truth. So we have the, this cataclysmic act, uh, activity, we have this global activity, but Scripture itself, the words of Christ himself, treats this as a historical judgment event. 
Jesus says in Matthew 24 and also in Luke 17 that just as in the days of Noah, so the coming of the Son of Man will be. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Furthermore, in Luke chapter 3, we're given a genealogy. We're given a genealogy that not, that not unlike the genealogy that we find in Genesis 4 and 5 and in the early verses of 6, takes us from Adam to Noah. In Luke chapter 3, it includes Noah on this pathway to Jesus, reinforcing the historicity of Noah and the events of his life, but also that Jesus is that true seed of the woman that comes in a long line of her offspring, of her seed. We just finished up a study back in the springtime of 1 Peter, and in 1 Peter and in 2 Peter, Peter references Noah, Peter references the flood, and does so in a way that communicates the contemporary understanding of Noah and the ark and the flood that it was a true historical event. So it is grounded in Scripture. Christ himself acknowledges the historicity of the whole earth being judged by God. Church, have, have faith in that. Have trust in that. The, the scientific record is going to maybe give you, give you a, a shot in the arm today, and then maybe tomorrow it's going to be a knock at what you thought you knew. What we, we, we take from the history of other cultures may be helpful, or it may be completely contradictory. Those things might be nice, but the Word of God communicated by the Holy Spirit to authors, maybe even communicated uh, by the Holy Spirit from the direct words of Christ himself, these are the things by which our faith is grounded. They refer back to a catechismic flood. They refer back to Noah and his family and the animals being preserved. It doesn't make sense to us, but a lot of things don't make sense to us. A lot of things are hard for us to believe. But bear with me for a moment. If you believe that God was able to create the world, whether he created it, as, as we've espoused in a very short period of time, or it took him a long time for, for, for whatever reason you, you might believe that. If you believe that he was enter, able to enter into his creation, if you, were, if you believe that he was able to die and be raised again, why are some things bigger hurdles for us to jump over? If the incarnation the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension is what we all believe. That's a baseline for being, in, in, being Christians, being in the church. That is a necessary thing. If you don't believe that, then, I mean, this is pretty harsh language, but you don't believe in Jesus. And if you can believe in that, why is the flood so tricky? If you don't believe in that, why is creation so tricky? Why are miracles so tricky? These are the questions that we have to ask ourselves. And Scripture treats all of these things as done by the sovereign hand of God and done for a purpose. I think that's one of the great reasons why there's so much skepticism about some of these things, about the flood, about creation, about miracles, is that far, for far too long, the evangelical church has treated these things as Bible stories full stop. And, they, and we haven't talked about what kind of like what we're doing this morning, really what, what the, but many of the early church fathers, many of the, 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 the medieval church, the reformers, the Puritans, what their focus was, how do these things teach us something about God and his plan for redemption? 
They're not isolated stories that aren't connected to one another, and they certainly aren't isolated stories that aren't connected to God's plan of redemption. When we treat them as isolated stories and we teach our children these things as isolated stories, then they can be pulled out one at a time and not dealt with in the cohesive whole that is God's scripture and God's plan for redemption in history. We treat them as cohesive. We treat them as God's plan of redemptive history. And at this point, we see that it's a much greater peril that we enter into when we begin to chip away at what we believe are simply stories. Anyway, back to the text. So what do we see in this, in in what we read in Genesis 7, 16 through 23? We see God's judgment, and we see God's salvation. And really, in a microcosm, in a boat floating on water, and in those struggling for breath and drowning beneath it, we have a microcosm of how our Creator deals with His creation. We see judgment, God can do what he wills with his creation. We see salvation. The creator can do what he wills with his salvation. Can we point to God and say, you should have saved all those innocent animals? Can we do that? You know, that's the funny thing. is, I, I, You'll read that. I don't believe in a God that could drown all those animals. And people have very strong sentiments about that. And of course, turn a blind eye to all the atrocities that are not done just done to animals, but are done to people today. People that, like animals, don't have a voice. Paul actually deals with this sentiment in Romans chapter 9, where he says, What shall we say then? Is there any unrighteousness with God? So, Ask yourself, do you believe it was unrighteous for God to drown animals and God to drown people? And of course, the flood pales in comparison with what is awaiting the creation at the end of time. Remember that, all right? Is there any unrighteousness with God? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Church, this is the God-focused theology of the Bible. The theology of the Bible, the theology of judgment, the theology of salvation, what we read in Scripture, what we see here in Genesis chapter 7, what we see in Romans chapter 9, what we see everything in between and on the outsides of those two verses is focused on God being the one who saves and has the prerogative to save and the one who judges and has the prerogative to judge. When we insert ourselves into the text and say, I don't like how this is going. I would have done it this way. I think fairness should be applied and arbitrated on the basis by which I think it should be arbitrated and applied. Then we are not making theology God-focused. We are making theology man-focused. And what happens when we do that? What happens when good, well-meaning Christians, because of their their attempts to be tolerant, what happens when good-meaning churches, in their attempts to be fair, do that? We're right back to that very same sin that we talked about with our children earlier today. God, you look like this. I prefer a God that looks like this. And just like a golden calf, 
just like a little plastic cow like we used earlier this morning, we are saying, I do not like the way you're doing it. I want to do it my way. We make our theology man-focused, not God-focused. It is God's prerogative to judge and do with his creation as he sees fit because of that fact that he is the creator and also he is the covenant God of that creation. Similarly, God is able to save those who he wishes. We have words about Noah and his righteousness, his obedience. We don't know the nature of Ham, Shem, and Yapheth. We kind of see that play out as the, as the, the days go on. We don't know about their wives. And so actually, there is a great grace in God admitting Noah's children and Noah's children's wives into the ark. Certainly, there's a pragmatism and repopulating the earth and, and things like that. However, God demonstrates grace in that the very people in his sovereignty, in his wisdom that he allowed into the ark, allowed sin to begin to propagate once again in the weeks and months after disembarking the ark. Really good, comes back to what we talked about last week, this promise that God made. He promised that the seed of the serpent will strike the heel of the seed of the woman. It will, of course, be, be exemplified at Christ on the cross dying, but it's also the kind of thing that historically occurs over and over and over and over again. The seed of the serpent incurs judgment. Those, like so many that we read, would have read about in Genesis 4, 5, and 6, fall in line with the economy of the devil, fall in line with the economy of sin, and consequently incur judgment on themselves and bring a condemnation upon those, uh, those, those rational entities and those irrational entities, all of creation around them. But of course, we see Noah, the seed of the woman, who is blessed with salvation. So do you see this, church? Uh, it's so essential to understand that man brought this judgment on himself. God did not drown a single righteous person. God did not drown a single animal that he did not have right over every molecule in its being, the breath in its lungs, the blood that flowed through its veins. Is there any unrighteousness with God? May it never be. God is actually the instrument of salvation. God calls Noah. He warns him of this great flood. God calls the animals. Noah didn't have to learn how to do a duck call and how to do an elk bugle and all of these things. They came on their own through God's sovereign hand. God himself shuts the door. It's a kind of a flyby aspect of this text, but I think it's so important that God is the one who brings them in, who, who notifies them, brings them in, seals them up, and pre preserves them as they are in the ark. So, so often, so much is said about, well, how much space would have been needed? How much uh, feed would have been needed? Where would they have gone to the bathroom? All of those questions, we think about that, but the thing that is clear in the text is that God took care of it. Once more, if God could create them with a word, why do we struggle with thinking about how he could have preserved them for 40 days and 40 nights? And notice one more thing, what made Noah righteous. He obeyed. 
In Hebrews chapter 11, it says, By faith Noah, being warned about things not yet seen, this is the interesting thing. Noah, it wasn't raining, for a lack of a better term. God says, everything is going to be underwater. Noah looks up, sees a cloudless sky, and says, I believe you. That might be a little bit crass and childish, but that is, in the book of Hebrews, the example given for Noah's faith. God, everything else says sunny day, but I trust you. I mean, that's a, that's a great challenge for us. God, I feel like I'm pretty self-sufficient. I feel like all of the blessings of my daily bread come from the fact that I work a job and that I can drive myself to the store and I can pick the white or the wheat and that I know how to like, eat it. Like, I feel like I've got this taken care of. God says, you need me for that. And our faith is demonstrated. Our righteousness, which is a righteousness, an alien righteousness, a foreign righteousness given to us by Christ is a righteousness that responds with, God, thank you for this bread and I need you to give it to me today and tomorrow and always and ever. Hebrews says, Noah being warned about things not yet seen in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. In reverence, Noah prepared the ark. So many things we could talk about. This is the problem of going fast. But we're going fast. So the whole earth was bent by sin. It was out of order. God brought it back into, some, into alignment. The whole earth was judged by God. And thirdly, we'll look about the whole earth receiving a promise. Turn with me to chapter 8, verse 20. So this is after they disembark. All the birds got sent out. All, that good thing, all those good things happen. Verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to Yahweh and took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. This, this is maybe not appropriate. All these animals just got spared. It's like, well... What were they for? There's a, there's a certain creation reality there. These animals, every clean animal, every clean bird, were saved for what? For sacrifice. These animals were preserved from drowning simply so they could have their throats cut on an altar once the waters receded. God had a plan. God had a purpose. God has a priority. God has a provision. Verse 21, And Yahweh smelled the soothing aroma, and Yahweh said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again strike down every living thing as I have done. Notice there what it says. I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. Is Noah perfect? Are Ham, Shem, and Yapheth perfect? No. God did a great judgment and cleaned the slate in many ways, but God himself acknowledges here in this text that he knows that man is still fallen, and so we shouldn't think anything different than that. Verse 22, this is, this is God's song of promise. While all the days of the earth remain, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night, shall not cease. What we see here is a covenant made in blood. 
even after all the death that happened, this was a, a death of judgment, we now have blood spilled for covenant, blood spilled with a purpose. And in that, God promises that he will sustain the earth until judgment day. Now, boy, talk about a can of worms. What this illustrates is that we're not going to wreck this earth with our aerosol cans and our diesel fuel. Does that mean that we act wantonly with these things? Does that mean that we do the opposite of whatever saving the whales is? Does that mean that we, we, we don't pay attention to these things? We pay attention to these things because that's part of the creation mandate that we've been given. But God, in his word, tells us that the earth will remain. We're not going to be able to break it, but that doesn't mean that we try to break it. We take care of it because it has been given to us. But God will, and he's promised to sustain it. If you believe that he has promised to sustain your soul, then in that very same breath, he's promised to sustain this world. You can't have one without the other. But as an image bearer, then we are good stewards of the creation he's given us. Then look at what it says in the first one of chapter 9. This is a bad chapter break. I'll take it up with the people in the Middle Ages that did this. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. What does that sound like? It's a reiteration of the creation mandate. So sometimes it said God started over from scratch with Noah. God didn't start from scratch. God is simply reiterating to a, 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 a new people, a new people in Noah, that the same creation mandate, the same expectation still stands for him. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Y'all didn't fill the earth last time, and judgment came from that. And not to spoil the story, they're not going to do it well. They're going to build a tower, but that's for another day. Continuing in verse 2, and the fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are given. So verse 2 is very important, church. Verse 3 as well. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. As with the green plant, I give all to you. To which we all say amen. About the living thing part. The green plants are okay. But just a quick historical note, this shows that Adam and Eve and their progeny up to Noah were probably at least predisposed to being vegetarian. And that the animals and man had a little bit of a different relationship. For God to say, now the animals will fear, fear of you, and now I'm giving you the things that walk as food, it shows a difference in the economy of creation. But then he goes on to say in verse 4, However, flesh with its life, that is its blood, you shall not eat. Surely I will require your lifeblood from every living thing, I will require it. And from every man, from each man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. As for you, be fruitful, multiply, swarm on the earth, and multiply in it. A few things that we see here, we have reinforced, we talked about, when we talked about the image of God, that the image of God was not lost when Adam sinned. This is being restated here in Genesis chapter 9, that man still bears the image of God. And because man bears the image of God, the sin of Cain, the sin of murder, the sin of disregarding and disrespecting humanity is still a sin. And the sin of murder brings about a capital punishment. 
verse cha- chapter 9, verse 6, um, excuse me, uh, yeah, verse 6, whoever sheds man's blood, by, his, by man his blood shall be shed. Capital punishment is not some sort of barbaric thing that man came up with because we just didn't know how to deal with crime. Capital punishment is not some sort of uh, backwards way of thinking that we've evolved out of. This is something that God has given and then gets articulated how that ought to be arbitrated, how that ought to be dealt with in a just society later on when we get to the, Pen- uh, to the, the law later in the Pentateuch. But this is just like everything else we've seen so far, something that God has given to all creation before Sinai, before the law. We'll, we'll wrap up quickly. Go to verse 8. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, As for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you. So again, with his seed after you, that is us. This is a, a covenant of perpetuity. Noah's, the, the covenant with Noah was not abrogated when a covenant was made with Abraham, when a covenant was made with Jacob, when a covenant was made with David. Those simply build upon this ongoing covenant that God made with man through Noah. Verse 10, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast on the earth that is with you, of all that comes out of the ark, of every beast of the earth. Indeed, I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood, and there shall never again be a flood to destroy the earth. Then God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I am giving, giving to be between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I put my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. And it will be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and will never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. So the bow shall be in the clouds, and I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all the flesh of the earth. We're so used to a rainbow. We're so used to red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. Pictured everywhere. But notice how God is talking about it. About setting his bow down. This is one of the things, again, we, we, we don't often think of. What is a bow used for? When we look at a rainbow, is it a bow like a bow that goes in your hair? No. Its shape is like the shape of a bow of an archer. What are bows used for? They are weapons of war. They are weapons of of destruction. And so when we see a rainbow on the horizon after a rainstorm, then this very shape, this very arch, is a reminder that God had a time of judgment and God had a time of, of, of animosity towards sin that was so great that he cut off the world. And until he returns, it says, this image of this bow being set down is going to be present. God put down his weapon of war because of his mercy. This is what the rainbow means. The rainbow, we can talk about this at length, has been co-opted. And in a way that is incredibly contradictory to the the nature that brought about the sin that led to the flood. 
What a middle finger in the face of God our culture perpetuates and continues. God says, I will not judge the world in this way again. And for some reason, our culture says, you know what would be a banner under which we could organize to show that we know better than God. Once again, the heart of man is an idol factory. The heart of man is bent. God's covenant with Noah, church, builds upon the covenant that he made with Adam. God's covenant with Adam and with Noah and the successive covenants that we'll talk about over the coming weeks all anticipate the great ratification, the great completion, the great fulfillment of the covenant that is established in Christ. The whole earth was bent by sin. The whole earth was judged by God. But the whole earth received a promise. A promise that it would be sustained. That mankind, God being long-suffering, God being full of loving kindness, God being patient, that mankind would have an opportunity for salvation. God says, as we already read, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And that compassion, that compassion of being called out out of a a wicked and perverse generation, that idea of being called out and brought somewhere and put somewhere safe and secure, an ark that is, is designed to weather and bear the rains and the floods and the storms of this age, a salvation that is sealed not by what we do, not by our profession, not by our actions, not by who we are, but by the mighty and sovereign hand of God that seals us with the same force, the same strength, the same power that he moved a giant door on a giant boat and he set it so firmly that no wave for over 190 days would knock it open. We are saved by that power. That is the nature of of the covenant salvation we receive from our great covenant God. We see the flood and we can't help but think about the salvation we receive and the judgment that we've been spared from. Because the salvation that we enjoy now and the judgment that is coming that we will avoid, not because of our work, but because, again, of the sovereign work of God, established through his son, Jesus Christ, applied to us by his spirit, are things that we cannot forsake And we cannot attribute to anyone else in idolatry, nor ourselves in idolatry. And so this morning, I think it's a good segue. We do not worship juice. We do not worship bread. There is nothing about the wine and nothing about the cracker that imbues some sort of value on its own. But through our faith, we acknowledge and we confess that Jesus Christ is spiritually present with us as we take the supper. It is a great and wonderful blessing we get to participate in. But we also get a warning of not just salvation that is pictured and that is communicated in these elements, but also judgment if we take it in an unworthy manner, if we take it in a manner that forsakes the high cost at which the body and the blood that this cracker and this wine represents. And so my warning to you, church, and not in a way that puts me in in the same position as Noah, 
But in 1 Peter, we read that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And so I'd encourage, if you, if you are not in a place where you can worthily take this, if you do not know Christ, then please stay away because judgment is coming. However, if you know Jesus Christ, come to this with open arms. Come to his table with great joy and receive the blessings that come from the great sacrifice and the great salvation of Jesus. So as John and the, the musicians come up to lead us in, in this song, I'll ask you to come up and receive the elements and go back to your seat and we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Will you pray with me? God, I thank you for Bible stories. Thank you that you did not give us a statement of faith or a confession or a creed that we can just memorize 10 or 100 points and that we get it. But that because you are the real God of real history, a real man named Noah, who was working hard until one day a raindrop fell and then endured so many things, he himself bearing witness to the great judgment that is the result of sin and that his account and his life and the events surrounding it, particularly your salvation, was recorded for our benefit. Lord, give us the faith to believe because, Lord, we trust that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, so much better than a wooden ark, so much better than 40 days of, of being preserved. But for our lives, for our very souls, he saved us. Lord, we do not forget that you have mercy upon whom you have mercy and compassion upon who you have compassion. We come to you as bent, broken beggars, acknowledging our salvation was bought by a great price. We thank you for that. Keep that in our hearts and minds as we come before you and your table. In the name of your son we pray, amen.